episode 5, Agorism. The nature of agorism is not yet too controversial. Why? Well, mostly because most people have not heard of it yet. Even in the Bitcoin and general CryptoCoin space, the nature of agorism is only just starting to become more well known. But I am sure that soon more and more people will start to define themselves as agorists. I am also sure the legacy media will try and label them as anything from anarchists to domestic terrorists in order to try and subvert their beliefs and aims and turn them back into statists. An exact definition of what an agorist believes is almost impossible. Like defining what a Marxist or a capitalist, it is almost too difficult, as it represents many different strands of the same thought. The Agorist logo most commonly used is the letter A with the number 3 next to it. It is used to represent Agora, Anarchy and Action. And so it is here where we shall start. The term Agora itself is meant to represent a belief and a move away from mandated state action and towards the rule of the market economy. It is this market economy which provides the backbone of society that statists believe is best represented by government action. In an agorist society, there would be little need for a state, though there may still be some semblance of a leader, ruler or government. But the point of agorism is that society will be voluntary and mostly run and society entered into through the signing and enforcement of legal contracts. Taxes and all mandatory authority will be voluntary. All of peaceful society itself will most likely be voluntary. Society itself need not be mandated upon the individual, provided you have the land or wealth to buy and raise your own food and other necessities. Otherwise, you won't quite be able to live as a rich stick of the dump. Now, everybody will have different interpretations of what agorism represents, what it should be, and what potentially, with the new alternative currencies we talk about on this podcast, how agorism might actually start to work. We should remember that an agorist society was possible before the invention of Bitcoin, but the ultimate victory of Bitcoin as the future monetary standard of the world means that a new agora society may now be unstoppable. In this episode, we will talk about the history of the free market and the agorist philosophy, with reference to some of its founding philosophical documents. The nature of these agora societies will change dependent on where you live, either urban or rural, European, American or Asian, common law or civil law, wealthy or poor. But all should know that the point of agorism is that it should benefit just about everybody. So what is the core central belief of agorism? If Marxism is the belief in the rule of the proletariat 
and capitalism, the belief in the role of capital, feminism, a belief in women, agorism holds the market economy in the highest regard. There are elements of Marxism, capitalism, libertarianism, and even feminism in agorism, but in reality, it is a completely separate belief system, and it does not hold anything other than the free market in the highest regard. For an agorist, the market economy is not to be trampled by anything or anyone. Not by governments, corporations, priests or the police should the free market be interfered with. It is this market economy that is sacred for agorists, as they believe the market economy is the solution to all problems, and therefore is the most vital element of a functioning society over that of rule by governments or corporations. Now, depending on the level of your agorism, you will believe to varying levels the power of the free market relative to state authority. Some, perhaps a large number of agorists are anarchists, but that doesn't really help us define anything, because some anarchists believe in some form of government. And some are, well, complete anarchists believing all state power is immoral. It's not going to be easy to take on the entire philosophy of agorism in one episode, but here we go. Some might attempt to begin a history of agorism with the precise start of the political movement called agorism in the 1960s and 1970s. However, I believe we should start much, much further ago. The three ages of prehistory are known as the Stone Age, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and they are prehistory because there was little to no use of writing. The Iron Age, at least in Britain, arrived in around 1000 to 800 BC and disappeared with the Roman conquest, who brought with them the first trappings of writing and financial records. What is the importance of this? Well, there was a market economy in Britain before financial records. It was, as we understand it, largely based on the bartering of goods. Now the problem with bartering is that it is quite inefficient. Bartering requires you finding the person who needs your goods and wanting to trade something else in return. In effect, bartering is not perfect. But it worked, and trade was strong in local areas across the island. But any visitors to Britain from Rome might have noticed an opportunity. The growth of the free market in pre-Roman Britain was strong. There were market towns where people would bring their goods to barter with for whatever else they might need. It was a sufficient enough system for thousands of years that Celtic Britain was not too much less advanced than Rome, and this according to Julius Caesar's writing, no less. But this was Britannia in the good times, before the Empire. The Roman Empire introduced writing into Britain, and with that they also introduced money. Roman coins have been found all over Britain. The Romans not only brought writing, but a level of financialization that Britain had never seen before. 
Rome's ability to raise a big enough army to invade the Britons showed us this. The Britons were not too much less advanced than their Roman counterparts, but the Romans knew all the tricks of the trade. The Romans' financial knowledge came to them from millennia of tradition from Babylon and Judea. They learned the process of empire building and how to colonise a market economy. Something the British, of course, never forgot either. The Romans knew the value of the British market economy. The sheer wealth of the British Isles attracted the Romans to it. The British market economy flourished even without money. If you were to add a strong unit of account to the British market economy, then the British market economy would suddenly become a lot more efficient. And the reason for the conquest of Britannia would be there for all to see. Essentially, the imposition of coinage and Roman rule meant that an agorist economy based on a free market and commonality between peoples was now over. Roman rule lauded itself over the market economy. We could say history did repeat itself in 1066 with the beginning of the imposition of Norman rule. After the Romans left, a certain level of agorism in the economy was bound to reappear as the Roman coin mints stopped. These coins might have been used still, but now the levels of financialization were greatly diminished. Bartering and trade returned to the island, only then to be snuffed out by the Normans, who once again wanted to take control of the island largely for its strong market economy. The Normans could then implement their own rules, coinage and taxes. This led to a certain myth based off a certain level of fact in folk British culture that still exists to some extent that the Norman yoke led to a centralised and tyrannical regime over the British people, a yoke that has not yet been thrown off. I would argue that 1066 still means that the British market economy is still not quite free from centralised rule. From 1066 to the present, a central authority represented by a much more French version of the monarchy than previously existed in Britannia ruled over the English and their market economy. It imposed conditions and regulations over this market economy, and none of this has been more pervasive and demoralising than the imposition of a centralised coinage or currency. The point of this is not that a unit of account is bad for a true agorist market economy, but that a state-imposed and centralised unit of account is not good for an efficient peer-to-peer -peer market economy, as the state can and will manipulate the allocation of resources to keep itself in power. Without getting into theories of free banking here, the concept of a free market needs a free and open unit of account and storage in order to prosper. But we don't live in 43 AD or 1066, but the early 2020s. 
we aren't entering the age of the Romans, the Vikings or the Normans, but the information age. The cyber economy fostering this new age is as profound a change mankind has experienced in a long, long time. It will reset how much of the world works, as the coming of cyber commerce in a native form will change how commerce works on a fundamental level. In short, the cyber economy will allow a form of agorism to return to first the cyber economy and then the real world economy. It will slowly infect everything and anything as this new monetary standard changes the world. There is an epistemological problem with defining the invention of an idea. As we've seen, the ideas of a market economy is as old as civilization itself. Indeed, the two go hand in hand. The British market economy had been one of the strongest for millennia too, with historically low populations and an abundance of tradable goods. Yet the creeping of financialization into what we might call now the West, the Anglosphere or the free world led to a slow and creeping centralization of the entire world economy. This centralization became centered around the facilitators of this financialization, which in the West became the banking system. Over time, the banking system became not just a facilitator of the market economy, but its lord and master. The banking system gained control over the issuance of promissory notes for the unit of account, which became gold, and then it never let go over this control as it then began issuing credit at will without the necessary reserves. The banking system became the facilitator of promissory notes, the store for the global unit of account, gold, an issuer of credit, and then, beginning with the First World War, it started the removal and demonetization of gold as it began to move to a purely faith-based monetary system. In effect, a peer-to-peer -peer market economy based on gold and silver was gobbled up slice by slice over millennia into a centralised, all-pervasive force. Capitalism became truly the rule of capital, as the banking sector controlled everything, slowly gaining more power than even democratically elected governments. It could be said that agorism is merely the belief against this system of a centralised market economy. One of the core claims of agorism is the ability to use whatever currency you wish. An agorist could still use the US dollar or Great British Pound if they so wished, but the coming of virtual currencies is a game-changer in the freedom it gives the free marketeer. The totalitarianism of the financial sector has leaked into everything, from politics, defence, healthcare, education and the criminal justice system. This is not a free market, in fact it is the opposite. The free market has been co-opted and massaged in order to keep this system of banking totalitarianism in control. All other aspects of the market economy must pay heed to the banking system. 
This does not result in prosperity for all. It results in poverty for many who did not benefit from banking largesse. In a peer-to-peer -peer system, it should be your peers who benefit from increased trade, and not the banking system. The rule of the banking system has led many to wonder how to change this system, from Occupy Wall Street to those on the left who claim to hate capitalism, to those who dislike corporatism, and most commonly, complete apathy about what to do. Yet beginning in the 1970s, as the horrors of stagflation hit the economy, following Nixon's final removal of the gold standard and a move into pure fiat money, as the Vietnam War and Great Society bankrupted the federal government, it led to a new and underground movement which thought that the best idea to solve everybody's problems was one that had already been used for millennia before, a peer-to-peer -peer market economy. Sometimes called counter-economics, libertarianism, left libertarianism, Austrian school economics, or free market anarchism, agorism was the name given to these collections of traditions, thoughts, and schools. A broad church for sure, but one with much overlap. There were a collection of works released during the 1970s, which we can now say began and comprises the beginnings of the Agorist tradition. The first was Samuel Konkin III, a libertarian philosopher who coined the word Agorism, coming from Agora referring to an open place of assembly and market, and the word polis, the Greek word for city-state. Taking inspiration from Ludwig von Mises of the Austrian school, he pushed the Libertarian Party towards this new tradition, but met with resistance from the incumbents in the party, namely the billionaire Charles Koch. Alongside Libertarian classics such as Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, Konkin's own New Libertarian Manifesto in 1980, and the science fiction classic Alongside Night by J. Neil Shulman, released in 1979, a tradition began to be born, one we can now say was far ahead of its time. Perhaps the core tenet of this philosophy was the removal of financial control from the banking system, but that looked near impossible at the time. But the internet slowly changed all that. The exact philosophy of agorism, like Marxism, capitalism or fascism, would be dependent on whom you ask. Some may highlight the anarchical elements of agorism, or non-violent resistance against the state. However, for me, it is the agora of agorism that is the most important facet to the philosophy. An open market and the open assembly for trading and it is this open assembly, which is what I want to highlight in this podcast. For agorism to be effective as possible, the use of new and superior monetary forms is crucial, as any open market needs to be less reliant on the use of money facilitated by banking institutions. This peer-to-peer -peer economy increasingly looks 
like it should be built on a peer-to-peer -peer monetary form. The opportunities created by Bitcoin is the Agorist's dream. Value will be redefined by both a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace and a peer-to-peer -peer currency. Local products and local services will replace centralised corporate-driven products. Everything from energy, food to entertainment and industry will become more localised. At the same time as a monetized internet enables the world to become a global village. The change will facilitate one of the most life-altering events mankind will ever experience. A true digital revolution to take us away from the industrial age and towards a more civilised and peaceful society in the information age. The Agorist philosophy developed in the 1970s was crude. Gold was the monetary form of the Austrian school, and this caused problems as it was a lot easier to confiscate a physical product. It was also a lot harder to move around and trade gold due to its physicality. There are perhaps three or four key texts that one should recommend to those interested in digging deeper into this philosophy. I would recommend Alongside Night by J. Neil Shulman, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, The New Libertarian Manifesto by Samuel Konkin III, and The Sovereign Individual, Mastering the Transition to the Information Age by James Dale Davidson and William Rees Mogg. Of course, there are other works you could read, and all works by Samuel Konkin would be recommended, but that's for the hardcore. And to be honest, much of the philosophy is from a different age, before computing and the internet. The philosophy developed, as we mentioned earlier, as a reaction against government overreach of the 1970s, as gold became demonetized or nationalized by the Nixon administration, who could no longer pay its bills. There were widespread and well-founded fears that this would lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of society. The Reagan and Thatcher market reforms of the 1980s helped to unleash, if not a free market, then a freer market than existed in the 1970s. But it was done through bank credit creation stimulating a new consumer economy and an East Asian manufacturing boom which coincided with the shutting down of the unprofitable industries in the West. In Alongside Night, rapid money printing leads to rioting, price controls, rationing, hyperinflation, and the ebbing away of the government's monopoly on violence. In the novel, we see the main character, Elliot, go into an agorist-style marketplace which could be better described as a free market citadel. Anything and everything is for sale. Nuclear weapons, illegal banks, duty-free merchandise, cannabis and much else. The complete free market of the citadel is a revolution against government controls over prices and materials. The hardcore free market of the citadel, where even nuclear weapons can be bought, is explained in the novel as being safe 
due to free market incentives. The seller of the weapons will only sell them for mining or for building projects, not to terrorists. The incentives of a free market means that nobody has an incentive to sell to a terrorist, who could destroy a city. Not only will it cause the death of millions, perhaps including the seller himself, it will fall back on the seller as they will lose reputation as becoming the destroyer of worlds. The entire society in the Citadel is built upon the idea of free people entering legally binding agreements who are free to do so. The enforcers of these contracts are the private police forces of the agorist markets. They are not restrained by law or economics, but by reputation. The private police forces can also be sued through arbitrage. Yet for our sakes, the novel has one problem it cannot quite solve. The monetary forms used in the book now looks quite out of date. With the novel set in the United States, where the US dollar is being hyperinflated out of usefulness, the agorists are stuck between using a European currency and illegal gold. It is not the most important thing in the world, but one can see how asymmetrical access to money is a problem in this world, which of course becomes a reason for the need of easier to use alternative currencies. Nobody can blame Shulman, writing in the 1970s, for basing his agorist free market around gold and a relatively stable European fiat currency. But the inadequacies of this are shown in the book, as money needs to be exchanged constantly due to the hyperinflating of the legal tender of American new dollars. The novel aims to show the strength of the free market. The counter-economics involved in the agorist market means it can operate almost without fear of the government. Sure, the government can raid any marketplace it wants, but with enough bribes, the marketplace owners can prepare and evacuate everybody and move on without consequence. The sheer number of unrestricted items means that even government officials shop at these places to secure what items they need away from official rationing and state control. The novel ends, spoiler alert, with the Agorist Free Market Society essentially taking down the government as the government's own contradictions prove too much. This novel forms one of the essential backbones of the libertarian ideal of a free market. Much like one could credit the work of Dickens with laying an intellectual groundwork for Marxism and later the welfare state and Keynesian economics with his depiction of the rich and poor in Victorian England, this novel aims to do the same for agorism. One of the core concepts of agorism is this nature of counter-economics. Counter-economics is at the core of the modern agorist philosophy. It argues that the best way to evade state power and to subvert it is through a free and open market. Not the open market as the state may describe it, with numerous restrictions and taxes 
but one where anything can be bought and sold freely. Indeed, the world's oldest profession, prostitution, would be considered an example of counter-economics, leading one to speculate that according to this, it would even suggest that counter-economics came before economics. The success of the black market historically has always facilitated the creation of a more open and free white market. The best definition of counter-economics comes from Konkin's pamphlet, Counter-Economics. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action, which is forbidden by the state. Counter-economics is the study of the counter-economy and its practices. The counter-economy includes a free market, the black market, the underground economy, all acts of civil and social disobedience, all acts of forbidden association, sexual, racial, cross-religious, and anything else the state, at any place or time, chooses to prohibit, control, regulate, tax, or tariff. The counter-economy includes all state-approved action. The counter-economy excludes all state-approved action the white market, and the red market, violence and theft not approved by the state." The black market is as old as the market itself. Contraband of all types has been sold for as long as there has been trade. Yet for most of history, this trade has been underground. But this does not mean the state is above the black market. Even state power has been used for counter-economics as a mean of warfare. The most famous example were the opium wars between the British Empire and China. It was the above-ground trade of narcotics which existed in a kind of grey market. But it was of such economic importance to the British, it almost resulted in the destruction of the Chinese emperor and his rule as the British sought to trade opium freely in China. We can see, through this, that counter-economics is vital to the general market economy. In some ways it can push the market to react in numerous ways, either by defeating the market economy or by forcing a change, or by being so large that it impacts the macro-economy. Colombia could be the perfect example of how important counter-economics is. The drug trade is not legal, and yet it is of such importance that it dominates the actual economy of the country. So what does this have to do with the monetary revolution of this podcast? Well, counter-economics, with the invention of Bitcoin and the even more private Monero, has meant that counter-economics is becoming more and more possible. The beginnings of this online is certainly the dark net markets, most famously the original Silk Road, founded by Ross Ulbricht, going by the name Dread Pirate Roberts. Hashtag free Ross. For the first time, native internet money could be used on internet sites privately without going through banks, in order to buy pretty much whatever you wanted. 
I do want to do an episode on darknet markets in future, so I won't go into a super amount of depth here. But darknet markets were the first to show the importance of what alternative currencies could bring to the internet, and how commerce on the internet would work and progress. And, most crucially for us, it showed how counter-economics on the internet would work. The Silk Road was founded in 2011, not long after the invention of Bitcoin itself, by the pseudonymous Dread Pirate Roberts. It gained mainstream attention in 2011, and for another two years, the site went on trading. In 2013, the FBI arrested Ulbricht and seized 26,000 Bitcoin from the site, plus Ulbricht's personal stash. The site offered all manner of drugs, fake IDs, along with legal things as part of the grey market, like apparel, art, books, cigarettes and erotica. The site never allowed the sale of child pornography or weapons, but some sites, such as Black Market Reloaded, were not so restrictive. Over the past 10 years, multiples of these darknet marketplaces have come and gone. Some have been raided and some have exit scanned. But the demand for contraband over the darknet is so huge and the costs of shutting down each site so vast, combined with the ease at setting up new markets, means that counter-economics through the internet with payment via Bitcoin originally and now Monero means that it is now a fixed part of internet life. There is nothing that can be done to stop these sites proliferating. A constant game of whack-a-mole is far too consuming for governments and law enforcement to play. Crypto agorism, it would seem, has already won. These darknet sites will be seen in future as the clear forerunner of future agorist marketplaces. The type J. Neil Shulman's alongside Knight centred his novel around. The counter-economics revolution on the internet is only just beginning. The implications of agorism, combined with new cyber currencies, as the sovereign individual calls it, or Bitcoin as we call it now, will be, and is being, profound. Peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, as Satoshi called it, will enable a peer-to-peer market economy to be built on top of this new monetary network. This will not be bartering, as there will be a strong unit of account, and so this will return us to a fairer exchange of goods than currently exists. The cyber economy will be a natural digital version of an agorist-style free marketplace that may have existed thousands of years ago in places like Britain. The only difference being the facilitation of this peer-to-peer -peer market economy will be by interconnected computer networks across the world. The globalisation of this digital marketplace will not, however, result in a second wave of globalism, but in a profound new level of localism. This localism will, of course, have global implications. The free market will exist freely across the world and the profoundness and ease of global transactions will have a counterfactual effect on local areas. Even with metaverses like AR and VR, nothing will beat getting out into the real world 
and experiencing life. This is the profoundness of the computer revolution, and it can be said with confidence that it will solve enough real-world issues via digital automations that more and more problems in the real world will start being solved. Computer utopianism will lead to such profoundly forward in the cyber world that everybody will want to get out and live their lives in the real world. The only place they can do so will be in their locale. Entire societies will change. Communities will find new local specialisations. 3D printing, blockchains, new energy sources and storage like hydrogen, new transportations like maglev and drone-style aeroplanes will make the world smaller and bigger at the same time. Automation will come to everybody powered by peer-to-peer -peer local networks. It will allow for the type of circular local economies not seen since the Celts in Britain to flourish. Communities forgotten for centuries as globalisation fostered conglomeration effects in certain areas will see these forgotten communities rise once again. London and the South East has soared in success during the globalisation era. But the once prosperous North, the leader in the industrial age, has suffered in the transition. Depending on the polity, there may be political breaks and confrontations, as the rise of strong peer-to-peer -peer markets away from governments moves whole communities away from the rigid structures of nation-states and the Westphalian system, and towards a more varied system. City-states may prosper in border regions, where there is little love towards the older nation-states. Belgium might be split up once again between France and the Netherlands, while Brussels and Antwerp might become city-states. Semi-autonomous regions inside larger states may grow in commonality. Powerful corporate cum-sovereign entities may effectively take over certain areas where there is opportunities. Las Vegas used to be run by the mob, Malta by the Knights Templar, and the Teutonic Order founded Prussia. The breakdown of the Westphalian model, which became embedded and central to the world during the Industrial Age, will break down once again to be replaced by an anarchical world system in which sovereignty is channelled through a variety of on- and offline entities. The only rules in this new system will be the market economy, powered by legal contracts, and the collective security of good actors to hold up these contracts. There may be territories on Earth which have no concept of state sovereignty and exist in anarchy. There might be purely opt-in sovereignty, elements of sovereignty that is more akin to some form of club membership to protect its members than the traditional notions we have come to understand of the nation-state. There may be forms of digital sovereignty that could not exist in an industrial world. There too may be polities that will rely on the rule of charismatic individuals. The variety will be endless. Agorism will not just be about physical goods, it will be as much about information. The information age will leave behind the physical age. 
Old Norse notions of the strongman as the leader of the tribe, due to their physical heft, will be replaced by the brainy ones being the leader. Geeks shall truly inherit the earth. The coming of the knowledge economy will benefit those who know over those who produce. Agorism will not just be about the exchange of mutual goods and services, but also knowledge. Indeed, some of the very richest in society may not work or own, produce or trade, but just know. Much wealth could be gained from knowing who to talk to by having a hookup to a pseudonymous individual who could be next door or across the world, who produces 3D models or VR simulations for the exact scenario you want. Digital handymen, like old-fashioned handymen, who will make you 3D models, fly drones, or can sort out your local blockchain or new internet application, will be some of the best paid in society. They might be people who come into your local shop and are known locally for their services, but at the same time might have a dozen pseudonymous identities for their more specialised services. These people will be found in locales the world over. The implications for the monetary revolution is profound. Commerce on the internet, as Satoshi described it, will radically change the way the economy works. Peer-to-peer -peer currencies will make the world more peer-to-peer. -peer. Napoleon once described Britain as a nation of shopkeepers. Well, the agorist economies that Bitcoin will foster will make the world a planet of online storefront owners, selling their own products and services to every place on the planet, and perhaps by then to the moon and Mars, space stations and spaceships, all with zero barriers to entry and zero borders. Instead of the centralising forces which the government monopoly on currencies engender, the peer-to-peer -peer monetary network of Bitcoin will mean the resultant gains goes towards everybody. The increase of the median net worth of individuals the world over will be stunning and the type of shift humanity has not seen since the dawning of the industrial age at least. And I think it will be as big, if not bigger, than the Neolithic Revolution. The monetary revolution will conflagrate with the dawning of the information or knowledge economy. What future generations call this shift is unclear. Perhaps the new economy will be so profound that it will be called the Agorist Revolution, where a monetary revolution and knowledge economy coalesces to form the Agorist Revolution. For such a theoretical episode, we need various elements of criticism of this new potential world economic system. Well-meaning criticism, that is, and not simply the words of statists who need daddy government to look after them. The criticism of agorism from other libertarians is generally centred around the view that a pure market economy is not the best idea, with it being too narrow a view of what is wrong with the world. Some such as Murray N. Rothbard, have been critical of agorism as it is too anarchist for his liking, preferring libertarianism to remain within the party structure and with the use of nation-states. 
He was also critical of Conkin's view that wage slavery will not exist in a libertarian agorist world, as he does not believe that everybody will be able to become independent contractors, like Conkin suggests. Then there are the state minimalists, also called minarchists, or believers in a night watchman state, who believe in the need for a state in order to secure law and order. An argument always lacking in common sense. If you honestly believe the only cause of peacefulness and law and order is the police force and the potential punishment you will receive, and that there are no other rational causes of non-violence, like basic decency, or the motivation to do no harm to others, as it is more likely to have no harm done to you, then I think you're wrong. This is a similar argument some theists promote, that without a god, godless apes will rape and murder each other without hesitation, as there is no incentive to get into heaven or to avoid hell. A fairly fallacious argument, if ever there was one. The concept of an agora society without the state does not necessarily mean it will be complete anarchy. For example, one of the British Empire's more impressive exports was its common law system. Common law goes much deeper than simply being case law. It represents the law of the land in a much purer sense than anything else, developing over millennia into unbreakable laws that not even Parliament can overturn. In the coronation of the monarchy, the monarch in Britain pledges an oath to uphold the common law, a set of laws even higher up than the Queen herself. My opinion would be that, for Britain an example, there would be no need to do away with all laws in an agorist anarchical society. Common law would and should still exist. It is perhaps the best practical application of natural law in society. It was the law that was common across the land, based on previous cases and influenced by trials of juries that establishes unbreakable laws. It grew and adopted other legal mechanisms, such as trial by jury and habeas corpus, recourse through law. Through wars, pandemics, civil war and state repression, the system of common law has been maintained. It is this common law in Britain that means there is no specific statute against murder, but through time immemorial it has been seen as one of the most heinous acts. If found guilty, it will always be punishable by law. No jury will ever not see murder is illegal. It is always illegal, even for secret agents in defence of the state. Murder is illegal. In an agora society, common law may not die. There could be private police forces fulfilling many elements of upholding the laws, gentlemen lawyers or lawyers working pro bono, and enthusiastic amateurs. After the defence of the realm, the secure working of the courts and legal system, and the redress of grievances comes as a close second as the state's most important function. Many elements of the voluntary state would find their interests matched by the enforcement of common law. Businessmen and traders would have incentives to prosecute thieves and shoplifters. In this society, 
you are free to live a peaceful life in a lawful manner, however you see fit. But breaking the law could still be seen as breaking the law. The law of the land would not die in an agorist common law system. Indeed, it might be strengthened. The other main criticism, especially of 1970s agorism, is an older one, and one that I think will fade away as new technologies come on tap. In the 1970s, as inflation hit the world economy, from the US, Britain, Europe and South America, the only monetary hedge against inflation was gold. Gold-based money formed the backbone of much agorist thought during this time. Yet the problems with gold in the modern world can be seen as a sub-theme and a problem with much of the 1970s and 1980s libertarian market economy thinking. It was kind of difficult to get a strong counter-economic system going with gold. Of course, paper money was not trusted, so the only other solution would have been a private bank issuing a promissory note backed by gold, which may have been better than pure fiat, but after all the effort to get this system running, it would have been a lot of effort for not much gain. For counter-economics to work, and for it to engender an agorist system, alternative monetary forms are highly desirable, especially monetary forms that support commerce on the internet. Bitcoin is the agorist revolution. This episode has been a speculative one. Agorism is not really a philosophical belief in the broadest sense. It is much more a prospective economic model, which then naturally lends itself to philosophical thoughts. It relies on an open currency to enable an open economy. Current financial gatekeepers have meant that small and medium-sized local businesses have suffered from the centralisation of resources over centuries. Wealth has been sucked from local regions and entire geopolitical regions over centuries. The vast wealth of South America has not gone to the South American people or even their governments, but Western corporations. Everything from Venezuelan oil, Brazilian timber and agricultural produce to Colombian cocaine has not benefited the ordinary people who live, work or farm there, but have been extracted by those already wealthy to make themselves even wealthier. African wealth was plundered by first colonialism and then neo-colonialism. The Chinese emperor was defeated by a variety of European powers over the course of the 19th centuries and then subjected to the forced opium trade as Burmese and Afghan poppies proliferated in his territories. The wealth of these lands should have gone to the local people but could not due to the over-centralisation of the economy around the government monopoly on violence and then money, which in turn meant the domination by corporations. There were no peer-to-peer -peer benefits for local people. Agorism means the return of the free market economy as the paramount sovereign in the world. For some, agorism means complete anarchy other than the rule of the market economy. For others, it means only a small weakening of government forces, as the market economy returns to a state it was in 100 years ago, 
before gold was demonetized. For others, there is still some element of state control. But what is certain is that what the state is will radically change. For all, agorism means the dismantling of the state as we know it, and replacement by the free market, which will provide everything, with the charitable redistributive arm of the state replaced by the higher incentives in a free market economy and voluntary redistribution. The future is uncertain, but the internet and Bitcoin cannot be stopped. Whatever changes, in this episode we have seen the future of the economy. The monetary revolution will mean life is freer and more open than at any point in recorded history. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next time with an episode on Taproot. So, rather than end the podcast there, I thought we would end with a little sample chapter from Alongside Night, one of the greatest books in the Agorist tradition. In the book, we see the main two characters visit the Agorist citadel, which brings our two characters into the main narrative of the book. So, without further ado, here is Alongside Night by J. Neil Shulman, published in 1979, Chapter 12. The picture phone was ringing. Elliot reached over to answer it, knocking over the Illuminatus, the book he had been reading the night before. About the fourth or fifth ring, he managed to find the answer button. Mr. Harper appeared on the screen. Good morning, Joseph, he said. Huh, all right, good morning. Elliot picked up his watch from the night table. It was just after eight. I thought our breakfast appointment wasn't until 9.30. Change of plans, Harper said seriously. I'm sorry, but I won't be able to make our breakfast date. Something important's come up. Bad news? I don't know yet, but I'm afraid I'll have to abandon you here for a while. I apologise, but it can't be helped. Elliot stifled a yawn. Anything in particular I ought to know? Check with the security desk sometime this afternoon. The commandment will tell you if I've left any messages for you. Okay, and thanks a lot. Elliot successfully remained awake by swinging his legs off the bed as soon as the screen cleared. He sat motionless for a full minute, then found enough energy to walk into the bathroom, somewhat more awake after splashing water on his face. Elliot got back into his slightly damp clothes. It was then he realised that he had forgotten to ask Harper whether he could afford to buy breakfast. Though crowded, the commissary did not present any particular problems. Elliot selected grapefruit juice, pancakes, eggs, bacon and coffee, handing his photo badge to the bursar who said, that comes to 17 cents, four mils, and charged the breakfast without any further comment. After carrying his tray to the, a small table on the far side, Elliot took his juice and resumed reading the library book. Two eggs, a pancake and a chapter later, a pleasant voice interrupted him. Can I join you? Elliot looked up to find his mermaid of the pool. Now clothed in a summery dress, he found even more enticing than nudity. The same glance noted that peripherally, his table was not the only one still partly unoccupied. Go right ahead, he said. Then summoning every last watt of willpower, he turned back to the book. His intentions were shattered about a minute later when he risked peering over the book and caught both her eyes again. Any good? she asked. I haven't gotten very far yet. 
I seem to be having a bit of trouble concentrating lately. Eh? Trouble. Not from this side. Elliot took the jacket in as a place mark and closed the book. Honestly, he said, I didn't intend spying on you last night. Forget it, she replied. We're both victims of it, you know. I couldn't agree more, said Elliot. What are you talking about? Each of us thought the other was a representative of the culture here, when actually both of us arrived yesterday for the first time. Elliot went on guard. How do you know that? Because both of us reacted defensively to a situation that anyone who'd been here even one extra day would have accepted as normal. Elliot bit into a strip of bacon, then, chewing, said, Have you got here yesterday? How do you know that's normal? Because after I left you at the pool, I walked back into the sauna and found an orgy in progress. What's the matter? Elliot reached for his coffee, a few sips managing to stop the chokes caused by remembering what Mr Harper had told him about the sauna last night. A piece of bacon went down the wrong pipe, he lied. So anyway, she continued, if that's the sort of thing that goes on, no one who's been here any time at all is going to get upset over a little midnight skinny dipping. Are you just going to leave that other bacon strip? The price of the lie, he thought. Help yourself, she took it. By the way, I'm Joseph Rabinowitz. She looked Elliot over carefully. Highly unlikely. All right, I'm not Joseph Rabinowitz. Who aren't you? She lit a cigarette nervously. I'm not Lorimer. How do you do? said Elliot. Is that not your Christian name or not your surname? Neither or both. Elliot wiped his mouth. Law, have you done any exploring around this place? Nothing above the fourth floor, the health spa. Same here. How about us seeing what we can stick our noses into before somebody tells us to stop? As soon as Elliot finished his breakfast, he dropped his book back at the library, and the two strolled over to the elevator, encountering buttons for half a dozen upper floors that they had not seen. Your badge or mine? Elliot asked. Uh, try yours first. If it doesn't work, try mine. Elliot inserted his photo badge into the control panel, pushing five. The elevator doors closed, then, without its having moved, they immediately opened again. He repeated the procedure with the sixth through tenth floors, getting the same result. He was about to try the entire sequence again with Lorimer's badge when the elevator doors closed of their own accord and the elevator descending. I think somebody is about to get, uh, tell us to stop, he said. Lorimer nodded. A few moments later, the doors opened to reveal a muscular security guard, Cardra, uniformed, pointing a taser at them. Elliot smiled weakly. Um, hello there, he said. Lorimer smiled too. The guard did not smile. Just what are you two up to? He asked sternly, motioning them out of the elevator. Just exploring, said Elliot. Lorimer started fluttering at her lashes doing an adequate impression of Scarlett O'Hara. Honestly, she said, her accent had moved south. The guard was not seduced. He must have been made of stone. I think I just caught a couple of statist spies. Do we look like spies? Lorimer asked. Her accent moved still further south. Any farther and she would have been speaking Spanish. Guard gave her a look suggesting that she, in any event, would pass the physical. 
What makes you think we're spies? Elliot asked. Why were you trying to get up to the maximum security floors? If you wanted to explore, why didn't you just look through the trading floor? Maximum security floors, said Elliot. Trading floor? The guard looked them over and saw they were genuinely confused. He motioned with the taser. Come on. He led Elliot and Lorimer to the security alcove and told the commandment, a different one from the previous night. Two for Aurora proper. The commandment asked them, anything you want from the lockers? I have a pistol, said Elliot. Do you think I need it? I couldn't say, he replied. Kaido are not allowed on the trading floor. Why not? Lorimer asked. Privacy, the commandment explained. The Allied business in Aurora have delegated to the cadre the right to monitor incoming and outgoing goods and the communications, to ensure that the location is kept secret, to make sure that the cadre can't try to use this authority against them. They forbid us to enter their domain and maintain their own security force to keep us out. Their guards are armed, except during emergencies we are not allowed to be. Well, said Elliot, if I'm allowed to, I guess I'll take my revolver. Right, surrender your badge, please. Taking their badges, feeding them into a collection slot, the commandment then got Elliot his revolver. After Elliot had put on his holster, the guard led the couple down the same corridor through which they had entered the cadre complex initially, retracing the 45-degree bend around which was the steel door defended by still another guard. The door was opened for them, and they were instructed to walk into the terminal corridors and wait there for a large portal opposite the terminal. They did, Elliot meanwhile, noting the terminal door locked, and a few minutes later the portal slid open. The door was opened for them, and they were instructed to walk through the terminal's corridors and wait in a large portal opposite the terminal. They did, Elliot meanwhile noting the terminal door was locked, and a few minutes later the portal slid open. They were facing the freight elevator. After they had got on, the door automatically slid shut, the elevator creeping down. When the doors opened again, they were looking down the main promenade of what looked to be a small village. Elliot and Lorimer faced a carpeted mall, daylight simulated by sunlight fluorescent panels in a low acoustic ceiling, 20 feet wide and stretching overhead twice the length of a football field. On each side of the promenade was an array of storefronts and offices the likes of which Elliot had never seen, and shopping in the mall were over a hundred persons, obviously widely of varying nationalities, creeds and customs. This is clearly impossible, said Elliot. Lorimer did not disagree. They began down the promenade, on the left passing Black Supermarket. It looked like a supermarket. Next to it, offices of the First Anarchist Bank and Trust Company. A narco bank, for sure. Farther down, no state insurance, and beyond that, a post office and the American Letter Mail Company. Lysander Spooner, founder. On the opposite side of the promenade were the contraband exchange, jewellery, novelties, duty-free merchandise, identities by Charles, makeup and disguises, and a restaurant, the Tanstaffel Cafe. There were several dozen more shops and offices that looked even more intriguing. Well, what do you think? Lorimer paused a moment before answering. I think it might be easier to hide in the Lincoln Memorial. We might be under it. 
they walked farther, passing the gun nut and an office for Gordon Construction. Coming to a door marked the G, Gerald Rome's Border Guard and Ketchup Company. Elliot and Lorimer looked at it, then at each other, and decided to go in. A bell on the door tinkled as they entered. The shop was old-fashioned, almost Dickensian, in a style with a small, well-dressed man seated behind a glass counter. He stood as they came in. Yes, Mr. Rome's, he bowed slightly. We were wondering what you sell here. My sign does not convince you. He spoke with a British accent contaminated by overexposure to Americans. Should it? Surely not. Gentlemen should deal neither in frontier guards nor ketchup. I'm a cannabis. You eat human flesh? Good heavens no, dear lady. I'm a cannabis, not a cannibal. A cannabis deals in, well, cannabis, sativa. The most select parts from the female hemp plant. I am a seller of the finest hybrids from Colombia, Acapulco and Bangladesh. Wholesale or retail, Elliot asked. Both, said Mr. Rome's. Though naturally, my store here is quite limited. Over three kilograms in tails outside delivery. What would an ounce of Acapulco go for? 39 cents. What? Very well. 33. Elliot pulled out his wallet, extending a blue. Do you have any change for a hundred? Mr. Rome's looked at it with disdain. Surely you do not think I was pricing in fiat. The price is 33 cents aurum. Well, how much is that in dollars? Mr. Rome shrugged. I'm not a clerk. He pronounced the word clerk, but it was clerk. I suggest you utilize a banking exchange, though. Thanks, said Elliot. Come on, lot. They started to the door. I say, on the subject of dollars. They turned back to him. He reached behind the counter, his hand returning with a small box. Inside were five manufactured cigarettes with gold dollar signs engraved on the paper. A house blend, grown hydroponically, in my own tanks. I'm sure they're excellent, but I can't do anything until I get my currency exchange. No, 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 said Mr. Rome's, on the house. Why, thank you, said Lorimer. That's very kind. Nothing at all. Come back any time. When they were fully at the door, Lorimer turned to Elliot and said, Well, I'll reserve my opinion until I see how these others are, Elliot replied. A two-minute walk returned them to the Anarcho Bank. Inside, three tellers, windows with half a dozen customers in line, and a sign on the wall. Officers in Aurora Autonomy, Auction Origa, Audacity, Austrian School, Auntie and Um. Elliot and Lorimer bypassed the line, instead walking over to a good-looking black woman behind a desk marked New Accounts. Excuse me, but who do I see to exchange new dollars? Elliot asked. Do you have an account with us? She asked pleasantly. Elliot shook his head. Then I'll take care of it. Won't you sit down? After Elliot and Lorimer had been seated, she asked, how much would you like exchanged? Elliot took out his remaining currency, counting out $2,700 in blues. Elliot took out his remaining currency, counting out his 2700 in blues. You'd like gold or... Euro francs. Uh, gold, I guess. She made use of a desktop computer console, then said, 
We'll have to buy your new dollars at what we estimate Monday's rate. She explained, that's the earliest we can sell it. And at 28.165 new dollars per milligram gold, we can offer you 96 mils. How much will that buy around here? Not very much. Uh, a carton of cigarettes at Black Supermarket or a light lunch at Tanstarfel Cafe? As a reference point, a dime Vendi trades at par with four mils. A quarter Vendi at 10 mils. That is one cent. Elliot thought a moment, then said, My money will buy me two dozen phone calls? If there were payphones in Aurora, which there aren't, yes. In that case, said Elliot, I'm interested in another transaction. Concealing his motions from both the woman and Lorimer, he unzipped his belt slightly and pulled out a 50 peso piece. He placed it on the desk. The euro francs, said Elliot. Ten minutes later, Elliot had exchanged his blues for a handful of vendies and had been given 405 euro francs for his gold piece. 10 euro francs per gram gold and an 8% premium for the coin. The new accounts officer also showed the Monaco bank gold coins of various weights, including a one gram wafer so thin it was sealed into plastic. Listen, said Elliot, after he had been given a thorough sales pitch from the minimum balance checking accounts, interest bearing time deposits and a small pamphlet called The Wonderful World of 100% Gold Reserve Banking. I don't mean this to sound nasty, honestly, but can I be sure this isn't a fly-by-night outfit? That's a fair question, she replied. Though I'm afraid the best way we can prove ourselves to you requires you to simply do business with us long enough for, to be assured of our honesty. Short of that, you can receive a copy of the auditor's report from the independent arbitration group or check with any of our overseas uh, correspondent banks. Anarcho Bank is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Union Commerce Bank in Zurich and it does business through it with above-ground banks throughout the world. Elliot and Lorimer got up. Well, thank you, said Elliot. The new accounts officer extended another pamphlet to him. Your application for a bank anarcho card, she said. For the next hour, Elliot and Lorimer window shopped, looking at duty-free Swiss watches in the contraband exchange, picking up a prospectus for Project Harriman a counter-economic lunar mining venture and scrutinising a wide range of illegal chemicals on sale in Jameson's Pharmaceuticals, displayed as the patent medicine counters of a discount drugstore. A sign on the wall announced, no prescriptions required on any purchase. Consult your physician in indications. And passwords of morphine, paragoric methadone and heroin was another. Smaller sign on the wall, but reproduced on each package. Warning, narcotics uses habit forming. Another counter displayed LSD 25, THC, mescaline, cocaine, sweet and low. In Nalevo, personnel Lorimer was told by a placement manager that they could guarantee her employment at 20 grams gold a week in one of the finer bordellos. The black supermarket impressed them not for what it had aside from tax-free liquor and cigarettes. Its merchandise was the kind any supermarket would sell, but for what it did not have, no shortages, no rationing, no listings of lawful ceiling prices. Elliot felt a momentary twinge when he saw a shelf stocked with spam. He had pushed his family to the back of his mind and felt guilty for enjoying himself. 
and it became evident that the trading floor was primarily a convenience for wholesale counter-economic traders, who shook hands on huge deals here and made their deliveries outside. It was only slightly unusual to see a person walking around with a face mask, though Elliot suspected that most of the people shopping on this floor were expendable. Agents of the actual buyers, whose faces would never risk being seen. After a five minute wait for a table, Elliot and Lorimer were seated at Tunstarfel Cafe. A sign on the wall translated the word as, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, and rightly crediting the acronym to E.Pernell. A special luncheon for Saturday offered a split pea soup, sandwich, french fries and a beverage, all for seven cents. After a brief discussion, Elliot ordered it for both of them. While waiting for the food, they paid a visit to the restaurant's old Wurlitzer jukebox. Finding it stocked with only classical music, Elliot inserted a quarter vendi and pushed I-23. The machine responded by playing Heifetz's recording of Tchaikovsky's violin concerto. Elliot and Lorimer spent another 90 minutes drifting around the floor, talking with document forgers, electronics technicians, and arbitration agents, and visiting, at Elliot's urge, the gun nut. On display was a weapon fancier's dream. Everything from pistols, bazookas, and M21 automatic machine pistols, to grenade launchers, subsonic generators, and lasers. Its real attraction for Elliot was a 50-foot deep shooting range behind the soundproof glass panel. After donning ear protectors, Elliot drew into a weaver stance at a paper target in the shape of an armed assailant. Afterward, he brought his target up to the front counter. The proprietor said, that'll be 10 cents. How'd you do? Elliot showed the man his target. He had shot a number of bullseyes, fewer holes further out, and none out of killing range. The proprietor nodded respectfully. Law, said Elliot as they exited the promenade. After this place, I'd believe you if someone told me someone here was hawking nukes. Someone was. The display mock-up had a sign underneath labelling it a 100 kiloton atomic fission device. The salesman in Lowell Pierre Engineering was telling them. But of course, much smaller than the megaton capabilities of the hydrogen fission devices. You provide the plutonium? Elliot asked him. Oh, of course not, said the salesman. You'd have to find your own source, but even if you did, you'd have to accept one of our supervisors to ensure that the device would only be used for excavation or drilling before we would even sell you one. We don't hand over nuclear weapons to fools who want to blow up the world. But you've sold these things? asked Lorimer. Really? Of course, said the salesman. Do you think we're in the business for our health? The freight elevator arrived for them without being summoned. Lorimer conjectured that they were being monitored from a remote security location. After returning to the terminal floor, they again approached the same steel door protecting the cargo complex. It also opened. The same guard who had let them out pointing a taser at them. Password, he said. A is A, Elliot replied. That's yesterday's password. But I wasn't given a new one. Give me the password or you don't get in. Elliot looked helplessly to Lorimer, who paused for a moment and then replied, Swordfish? Go on through, the guard said. Elliot glanced at her suspiciously. The commandment gave you the password while I was getting my gun, right? Horse feathers, she declared. After each had registered, Elliot checked with the security desk as Harper had told him. There were no messages, and Elliot began to wonder why he had been brought to Aurora whether the carter were doing anything to help him, 
and where the hell Mr. Harper was anyway. As they walked to the elevator, Elliot told Lorimer that he was still free. What about you? I don't have anything until appointment on Monday. Any suggestions? Well, how about a swim? I don't have a suit, said Elliot. Neither do I, said Lorimer unblushingly. Elliot did blush. Or, she continued, we can try out some of that grass. Uh, I'd better keep my hair clear for a while. Oh, okay. Why don't we go back to your room and fuck? They entered the elevator, Elliot unclipping his badge and inserting it into the control panel. He studied Lorimer's expression, then punched the third floor. Am I really that dense, he asked. They were resting in each other's arms when the alarm was sounded.